Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Please consider supporting Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. You can learn more about them at bwunited.ca. They are always looking for donations and volunteers. So please, again, support Black Women United, YEG, for the protection and advancement of black women and girls in Alberta. Again, that website is bwunited.ca. This is Dimitri Samarov from Chicago, Illinois, and I love listening to Vishkana's creative control because whether he's talking to a favorite musician or actor of mine or someone I've never heard of, it's as if he's introducing me to a new friend, and the way things are going, couldn't you use a new friend? Listen now. To make your flexible monthly donation to Creative Control, please visit patreon.com slash Control today. Damien Rogers is a very talented writer, educator, and editor based in Toronto, Ontario. An acclaimed poet whose two published volumes to date, 2009's Paper Radio and 2015's Dear Leader, were critically lauded and nominated for literary prizes, Rogers recently wrote her first major work of prose. It's a captivating and devastating reflection 
upon her life with her carefree and spirited mother, who now suffers from frontal lobe dementia. The book is called An Alphabet for Joanna, A Portrait of My Mother in 26 Fragments. It's out now via Knopf Canada, a division of Penguin Random House. And Damien and I recently connected for a good discussion about this hard work of personal historical significance. Her experience working as a writer during a pandemic lockdown, what it was like being in New York City during 9-11, how her friends Heather Winna and Steve Albini helped land her an editing gig at Drag City Records, where she worked closely with artists like John Fahey and Bill Callahan, among others, the erasure of the feminine, and much more. A part of the Entertainment One Network with the support of listeners like you who follow and subscribe to this podcast and spread the word about it, plus in-kind support from Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, Ontario, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton, Ontario. This is the 588th episode of Creative Control, featuring the brilliant Damien Rogers with your host, me, Vish Khanna. Hi, Damien. How's it going? Hey, Vish. It's going well. How are you doing? I'm not bad. I'm not bad. I'm uh, calling you from our home in Edmonton, Alberta. Where, where in the world are you today? Uh, I'm in Toronto, and uh, the weather is, uh, not that you asked, but is uh, almost <laughs> sunny. It's trying. I feel like that's kind of the one thing I hold on to when I try to think about where I am is what is the sun doing? Can I see it or not? Yeah. It's interesting that like you are indoors, I presume, but, and when I asked you where you were, you felt compelled to bring the outdoors in. You know, I'm what desperate is going to, Leash. <laughs> <laughs> I, guess, I guess we all are. What is it like outside? Oh, that might be nice to go outside, wouldn't it? It would I'm sorry, be nice. I'm, I'm sorry I'm keeping you from the outside, but uh, it is nice to speak with you. I feel like it's been a while since... Uh, since you and I chatted, um, so it's it's nice to catch up uh, in this way. So I, you know, we're towards the we're in the last month of 2020. Uh, it's been uh, the worst year of our lifetimes in many respects. But I don't want to. I've already framed it uh, poorly. I want to ask you what your perception has been of this year. What is what it's been like for you in Toronto? So let's start there. What was 2020 like for you in Toronto, Damien? Well, I mean, for us, there's been so many challenges. I haven't been able to travel. Like, I mean, no one, none of us have really been able to travel the way we normally would be able to. I haven't been able to see my mother, you know, yeah. uh, who's in a nursing home in Buffalo. So a couple hours away. Uh, so that's, that's been difficult and challenging, but you know, and there's been, you know, I have, we have any Mike and I, you know, my husband, Mike, Mike Bolitsky, um, have a eight-year-old son. So, you know, the whole period when school was out with the three of us were, you know, in quite a bubble together. But, I, you know, there was a lot of things about that that were really great, actually, for us. And, you know, Mike is the drummer in the Sadies. Um, 
as I know you know, and so they're on the <laughs> well, road there's all people, the time. There's people, people listening who no, may not no, know. No, no, not so. that everyone knows. I mean, I yeah, know that you yeah. know, Vish, because yes. you guys are, are friendly. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, I think I met you through Mike, so I should I should frame it uh, as as uh, something only you know. Um, but <laughs> something yeah. I normally keep a secret. But uh, so because Mike is on the road so much, this has been such a strange year I mean, we've been a couple for over 20 years, and this is the first time we've had such a long, uninterrupted period of time together. And then as a family, it's been amazing for Levi. So, you know, I hesitate. Like, it hasn't been an easy year, but there have been, along with the challenges, there there have been some aspects of the... lack of travel and aspects of the being of the constriction that have had their, you know, I mean, I I actually hesitate to to say it like this, but there's been a lot of pleasure within that constriction for us. Um, not, you know, not exclusively pleasurable as an experience, but I feel incredibly lucky. I feel super privileged since in the last couple of years, I've been teaching part-time, at Ryerson University teaching creative writing. So uh, I've been able to continue doing that off and on. I mean, it's not the most stable form of employment, uh, but it's been great just to know that I can still, you know, I was teaching when we went into lockdown. And so my class was two thirds of the way through the semester when it suddenly became an online class. And that was a very strange way to enter into this very strange year or yeah. that aspect you know we think of the year as starting in march i think yeah because, yeah exactly yeah yeah you know our our understanding of the year became so eclipsed by everything that happened from march on for most of us and you know going into that um from and i was trying to finish this book i mean the other thing is as i finished this book in the context of lockdown i was unable to do some of the like very simple practical things that we left to the end, like in terms of like how the book was going to look physically mm-hmm. things like scanning images and scanning lists and um, you know, sort of some of the ephemeral visual matter in the book. Um, you know, I suddenly couldn't go to the penguin random house headquarters and, with my bag of, paper matter to be scanned. I had to go out into the backyard on a cloudy day with a borrowed camera and try to get photographs um, without shadows in them, you know, because I'm not a professional photographer. So there were all these like those sorts of challenges were really stressful, you know, trying to figure out how to promote a book during this moment, you know, releasing things into this moment has been really Painful, I think, for a lot of different people and different genres that I've spoken to who've had things come out during this time because you don't have any opportunity to meet your readers or, you know, perform for an audience. So that's been really difficult. But I'm also kind of amazed at the fact that I was that we were able to do it. But I feel like my 2020 is so intertwined with uh, trying to finish this book that I've been working on for a really long time and then try to figure out how like the practicalities of getting it out when especially the beginning of the lockdown when you know warehouses were closed and you know it took a long time for for even some you know like is this going to be are the printing presses going to be running you know we didn't there was so much we didn't really know so 
I just feel very fortunate. Like I think it's it's been a shitty year for everybody, but at the same time, I feel like I'm just I just feel very aware because of that. I think of how lucky I am. Like I just and I'm trying to focus on that. You know, it's so easy to focus on the fact that things didn't go the way I had pictured them as, you know, recently as maybe February. <laughs> but <laughs> at the same time, you know, we're we're all moving through this together in a way that I actually feel, you know, I think it's, it's provided a certain amount of perspective for me about like what's important and all of that. I would concur uh, wholeheartedly uh, from a place of uh, privilege and fortune in that, you know, my family and extended family uh, have not been touched uh, by this pandemic directly. In a sense, we've lost people, uh, uh, friends of the family and, and uh, it is serious, but, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, my wife, uh, Michelle, will occasionally be like, oh, I can't handle this, being stuck in the house with everyone and not being able to see her family, which is why we moved to Edmonton. Uh, you of know. course, yeah. And every once in a while, she'll she'll kind of break down and I'll say, well, think of the bright side of this. We're all together. We're all healthy. Like, this is time. You know, our kids, like, like your son, uh, I, I think your son's just about a year behind my son. Uh, similarly named as well. Yes, I know. <laughs> Levon, <laughs> Levon and Levi. But yeah, they're, they're at an age where like, I know exactly where they are all the time. Uh, I don't have to be nervous about where they are in the world, what they're doing, what they're up to. Uh, so there's that aspect of things. Uh, you know, we're, we're kind of, and we're, as much as there's some strain, we're gonna we're spending the most time we may ever spend together in our lives. And I'm trying to see the value in that um, as opposed to it being... Uh, you know, a burden. It is hard some days, some weeks, uh, some hours. <laughs> like, oh my God. I, uh. But I, I, I appreciate what you're saying about relishing this uh, this period and, as, as best we can. Um, you know, it's fascinating. You were talking about kind of the temporal confusion that we're all engaging. You mentioned, like, I guess this year started in March. Like, that's kind mm-hmm. of a, an interesting way of putting it. And so many of the people I, I've talked to have used this sort of suspension of time in interesting ways. Some are making new things. Uh, some are tending to older things they just never get got around to doing. Uh, but a lot of the in in most of those cases, I would say uh, people are making things or doing things that are dependent upon other people, other technologies that they may not have access to. You know, recording studios or uh, art spaces where they can create. Uh, you know, they can't get to them because of the various lockdowns. You're a writer. Um, and I wonder if, like, obviously your 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 husband and your son are afoot and underfoot, perhaps. <laughs> Has this suspension in time, did it help you get a lot of writing done? Like, you, in, 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 in theory, you need a computer and some space and some time to write. Did you find you had more time? time to work on this book like more than did it get done ahead of schedule or anything like that oh well we definitely didn't get ahead uh, no (laughs) but but that wasn't but that's not i mean the book was uh took me a long time to finish and so there and i was always under the um very sincere sense of 
that the book was almost finished <laughs> for like for a few years. It felt like oh, okay. I was a month away from finishing this book and then it just, I just couldn't finish it. I couldn't quite pull it through. I mean, I would say for me, I do feel that writers, you know, are, are in a good position to be productive in a lockdown. Yes. It is difficult to focus, I find. Um, and even like it comes up and down. So like in like, uh, you know, from week to week, day to day, there are days when, I mean, I'm currently working on four or five different projects. So I'm trying to figure out how to discipline my time. And especially in the absence of deadlines, there's no one waiting for it. The world is so weird right now. It seems like trying to even shop anything around would be pointless. So, you know, trying to figure out how to schedule my time properly has always been a little challenging for me and it's really it's it's so necessary now but I do feel also there's this other part of me that finds this moment I mean in the very beginning I mean and this is probably because you know I'm, I'm of the temperament of you know I went into poetry first for a reason you know there that kind of suspended sense of time is is a very comfortable place for me and I, at the very beginning, uh, was almost in a sort of ecstatic state because everything was so heightened and Mm. we were, there was, you know, and I, I have tendencies towards agoraphobia. I have to work on like for someone as social as I am and someone who loves to perform and loves to go out and loves to dress up and be around people and see music and, you know, all like I have this very outward looking part of my personality, but I also have a part of my personality that can become very withdrawn and that can get into uh, a, a like extended period of isolation. And mm-hmm. I think that suddenly the world was uh, totally supporting that part of my <laughs> my brain. So, I, you know, it's I, I like at the and especially in the winter. So, like at the like every winter, there is a, a period of time that if I am not required to suit up and boot up and show up somewhere, I can easily go a few days without leaving the house. Isn't um, it great? I like it. I like that part of it. I like not. Uh, this I is my dream it. scenario. It's a dream scenario. Like I, I'm working my my office job from my house. I don't have to get on the train or the bus. I don't have to get dressed. I've been wearing the same top and bottom (laughs) for like weeks. I, you know, I'm just letting you know everything underneath. It gets changed. You know, I'm I'm not gross, but I'm just like I don't have to. I don't remember what my favorite pants are. I used to have a. I used to have an order, a pants order. Though those pants. I'm going. If I'm going out in the world, I got to wear those pants. I got. Do you have that? Like a priority sequence of your clothing? I have that. It's yeah, gone. Yeah. I, it's gone. I, I I feel bad. My my favorite pants. I think if I can remember correctly, they're just sitting there doing nothing. They're hanging. They're just hanging around. They're not doing anything. I don't wear them. I wear corduroys well, every day. It's great. I like that yeah. part of it. I mean, it, I have to but- confess though, too, Vish, that uh, Mike got very confused when I walked downstairs uh, for your call because he's like, "Is it a video?" call because I'm I'm wearing really nice shoes and I'm wearing a very cute outfit right now. Okay, all right. I feel like I sometimes need to do um 
in order to change my consciousness a little bit about the, like, I, uh, you know, I don't, I, I didn't want to be wearing my, my like pajamas, you know, right. all day. Sure. Um, you know, like it changes things. So it's funny. Like there is this sense. What, one thing I'm really fascinated by that is that it really has kind of brought this other level of, of thinking t- for me around like self presentation and the idea yeah. of why why do we dress a certain way? Who is it for? If you know, do you keep your house clean if no one's going to see it? You know, do you take a shower if you aren't going to be seeing anyone except your immediate family? I feel great about cooking with tons of garlic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, like, yeah, the co- yeah, exactly. Cooking. I mean, you know, I know there's things like that. I, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. But I do feel like. That idea of, I I have to really, I mean, I have a a history of um, pretty serious depression. So I I also have to be really careful. So there's an element of it that's really delightful to me to have a kind of buffering from the expectations of the world. Yeah, conventions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of like, you know, when you, for those, uh, you know, for people who've had, um, who have had children, uh, which, you know, Mike and I did pretty late in life, but that that moment of being home with a newborn and like it just annihilates the outside world in a way. Like you're just completely in this cocoon because you know, especially as a, the mother, like you are just so entirely required to pay exclusive attention to this one small living thing. I think there's that. I loved that moment after, you know, and some people find that really traumatizing to, to be isolated in that way. I think I have a desire to be alone um, or to be inward and to be separated um, from the world. And I have this other part of myself that, that loves to kind of go out and be stimulated by sure. the outside world. But yeah, but as a writer, like I, I think this is, this is as long as you are in a situation where your basic needs are stable, you know, like, uh, you know, you can make rent or... Um, you know, get groceries and like all of those things are, I mean, there's so many yeah. people who, you know, don't, don't have the, that, um, those basic necessities, that kind of yeah. resource yeah. security and, yeah. and, you know, and I don't know how long we will, but like there yes. is that, you know, when, if you're, if you have that kind of security, then having that, I mean, particularly that feeling that, that I think what is gets from in the way the most for me with writing is the real estate that gets taken up in my mind um, by to-do lists and emails I have to answer and other things. Other, you know, there's these like kind of churning yeah, yeah. frills. I would call them frills. Have you? Don't you notice like when we see depictions, like science fiction movies, books, whatever it is, when they depict the future. It's always very utilitarian. Everyone's kind of dressed the mm-hmm. exact same. They wear these onesies or yep. they have the same shirt, maybe a different shade. Maybe they, the, 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 the precursor to all the science fiction were a bunch of pandemics where everyone was like, you know what? Fuck it. Why are we wasting our time with the clothing? And the, it's We just got to survive here. Why don't we just all dress the same? We all agree. Same hairstyles, whatever. And then we move on with our lives. I feel like that's what's sort of happening right now. Because fashion, I feel like, stopped 
mattering in the 90s. We all dress however we want and no one raises an eyebrow anymore. You know what I mean? No one cares. Mm-hmm. 90s, remember our 90s photos? They look like they're from the 90s and now you can't tell, like all our photos now, it could be from almost any time. We put these filters on them. They make them look like they're from the 60s or 70s. Something's going on here temporarily and I feel like something's happening and I, I don't know how to explain it. But I'm glad we discussed it because I I just had to get some yeah. things off well, my I chest. Well, I think we feel outside history. Yes, right. Exactly. Like I think that we feel outside. Like this is such an intensely historical moment that we are. You know what actually really helped me uh, kind of get out a, a step back from it a little bit as I read Pattern Recognition by William Gibson. Oh, yeah. Speaking of science fiction, which I had a signed copy of for. I mean, it came out in like 2003, I think, 2004. You don't have to brag. Never got around to reading it. You don't have to brag. Well, I got a signed copy. What I mean is, <laughs> well, I'm bragging about having ignored it. I mean, I got it signed. I went to a reading. It's not like we're, I had dinner with them. But, uh, you know, I was, it, I had every, I just never read it. Yeah, and sure. then I, I read it recently. And it's very interesting because it's written right in the wake of September 11th and I found September 11th very difficult. I actually wrote about it in the book, Uh, but, um, and I didn't even get as into in that. I'm just sort of like talk about like the moment itself, but it was a, I mean, it's the reason I live in Canada. Like I was living in New York. I was living downtown. Yeah. You were living in, you were working in New York city when it happened. And, uh, yeah, that's depicted in the book. Yes. I can see why you were to get out. Yeah. 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 Well, and and that was a moment where, and it feels strange to talk about that now because, you know, of course, life reassembled itself in a very recognizable way, looking mm-hmm. back, like, especially for people outside New York, pretty quickly. But in the moment, I found my sense of, I remember walking home from where I worked in Midtown to the East Village, really feeling like, oh, this is the new reality, like... There are places all over the world that are suffering uh, this kind of expression of aggression and warfare, um, often with, you know, the United States involved militarily. Uh, It's just I have lived this privileged existence where I've never been in a city that has experienced like this, this kind of an event, this kind of violent event. And I'm grateful that. I got all, you know, I had all of that time to not be in fear in that particular way. But this is now, it makes sense that eventually major American cities would join the rest of most cities around the world and being obviously um, sort of a a target, uh, you know, at, at any given moment. And I really did feel like, okay, like that was, I'm really lucky that I got to live a big chunk of my life. you know, before that happened here. And I really thought it was going to be like this. Like, it's going to be like this. This Trying to figure out how to walk from Midtown to this village without walking by anything that might blow up. You know, we're like, okay, we don't want to go by the UN. We don't want to go by Times Square. We don't want to go past the Empire State Building. You know, we were very methodical and very... And that's what I think happens is a lot of times when like the most frightening things happen or the things that destabilize our sense of how reality functions and the things that totally throw or disintegrate our, our sense of like what, like it's, it would have been, it was unthinkable in February that we would 
like shut down entire the entire west like every, the entire globe right yeah. <laughs> for months and months and months and like all be wonder walking around with masks and like it's it happened so quickly in that way and i think that and when those things happen really quickly uh there is a kind of dissociation that 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 kind of comes with that and i think that going and reading pattern recognition reminded me that I've actually been through and yeah, it was different. And in terms of how it affected others, like, you know, actually much more compressed in a way, I don't know, I mean, it changed the way going to the airport felt forever, but, yeah. uh, but just being reminded that, that I have gone through this, this kind of feeling of like, Oh, this is history yeah. and I'm inside it. And, then and it's making me feel outside time in this particular way that uh, feels like I it's nothing like this has ever happened to me before. But you know, like the more you're able to like situate thing events like this in longer human timelines, it's like okay, yeah, we haven't had a pandemic like this in a hundred years, yeah. but you know, they, this is part of what it is like to be a bioorganism on this planet. So. You know, and and actually, I'm still in the same house, and the refrigerator's still running. And you know, like there's certain things where it's like our anxiety and our fear can become so inflamed that we kind of lose touch with like all of the ways in which we are in this moment actually okay. You know, um, for those of us who are, you know, yeah, it is. I don't know if you intended this, and I have a feeling you didn't, but it was. It's it's been striking to me. As you're speaking about 9-11, about pattern recognition, about how we situate ourselves in places uh, or in in, uh, in scenarios where there's turmoil or surprise, it's striking to me how much of this uh, might lead us into a discussion about your book, uh, An Alphabet for Joanna, yes. <laughs> A Portrait of My Mother in 26 Fragments. Like some of what you just discussed, and I know you alluded to a specific episode that is uh, rather, you alluded to the fact that you discussed 9-11 in the book. But yeah, a lot of what you're saying seems to relate about the pandemic, uh, seems to relate uh, to you and your family a little bit. For those who haven't read it yet, can you summarize and explain what An Alphabet for Joanna is about? Absolutely. I mean, I think it's it, it resists in a simple um, summary, which is, I think, kind of been a little challenging in terms of talking about the book because the book talks about a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. But in the most straightforward way, my mother was diagnosed with frontal lobe dementia about 10 years ago now. And I'm an only child and uh, I was raised with my mother. My mother was single my entire life. I didn't know who my father was until I was about 10 years old. I didn't meet him until I was 13. And so he was sort of a ghostly figure in my childhood. I was raised by my mother and my grandparents. And there were a lot of things about my mother's history that I didn't ever really have a clear understanding of. I had known that she'd gone through certain traumatic events. Some of them I was very clear about what they were. Some of them I was, um, I was in a state of sort of guessing and speculating for a lot of my life. And so as I watched her forget, um, you know, who the people around her were, who, you know, ultimately she began, you know, she always responded to me when I'd go see her, but she couldn't tell you who I was if you asked her. And, and as she lost her language and, um, this whole, you know, harrowing long 
terrible process uh, that that happens when you're in a situation where someone is um, experiencing severe cognitive decline, like you feel like they're disappearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, but then there's this other part of them that remains mysteriously intact. And so like thinking about memory and uh, like what happened to my mother in her past before I was even born trying to figure out like what I could piece together and watching my mother, you know, and I, I I became pregnant with my son Levi um, almost immediately after I got her into a safe place to live. So, you know, becoming a mother and becoming responsible for my mother, like I'm her, I'm not legally her guardian, but I am the, you know, I'm her healthcare proxy. I'm, um, you know, I have all the legal authority to make decisions for her care. And, and you know, I, I, it's that whole moment in time where people start to parent their parent, yeah, um, yeah. which is something that on a certain level I'd, I felt like I had done as a child in some ways when we lived alone, just the two of us, uh, just the nature of our particular relationship. So I wanted to, you know, I was motivated to try to piece together this idea of who she was while she was disappearing in front of me, you know, and it was not a simple story to tell. Uh, so, you know, a, it's a lot about recovery, like the recovery of the past, recovery of different stories, trying to piece together her life as well as our life together. Um, but then it's also a meditation on language and the, that relationship of that, that language and memory share, you know, how how are we able to think about who we are? Like, who are we if we don't remember our stories? And, and how do we hold on to people who are very important to us when they no longer recognize ourselves? You know, even they, they're, they're unable not only to recognize the details of their own life, but they're no longer able to recognize us. And so, yeah, the, the act of putting the book together was also a way of kind of managing this unmanageable process of advocating for her across an international border and, yeah, you know, all of these other practical things I had to work through thinking about, um, you know, her healthcare and where she was going to live and how we were going to make this work. And, you know, there's, there are, you know, it's like, it just doesn't end, right? There's just like new challenges and, and new things that, you know, get resolved. And as you move through a story like that, so like, I mean, in real time. So I was writing all the time, taking notes all the time while we were having this experience. And then I was also reaching backwards and I started interviewing people that she'd known and um, you know, most of the people in her life have disappeared. I'm not close to very many people in my biological family and yeah, you know, so it, there was a, there, it was not a straight road trying to um, piece her story together. No. And I mean, you do a remarkable job. It becomes this uh, anthropological study really of, of a family that, you know, so many of us, I, I, I will tell you, and I mentioned this to your husband, Mike, uh, maybe today uh, on the phone that um, I've been, I tend to read my books at night at bedtime. <laughs> and, um, you know, since we moved, 
Uh, I haven't had too many uh, hankerings to be back in Ontario, but reading your book made me miss my parents a lot um, mm. and made me also, I think, feel fortunate that I'm connected to them still and that they're, my parents in particular are around. And uh, because I know this is a sort of case study about your, your mother and her life, but it's also sort of a quasi-memoir for you and telling your story. And I do think that in my experience, uh, you know, you grow up deeply connected, if you're lucky, you grow up very deeply connected to your parents, like attached at the hip, basically, you rely on them. And at some point, when you try to find your own way, you kind of reject that connection and try mm-hmm. to be like, no, I- I'm on my own, I can I can function. But then as you get older, maybe as you have children, uh, in my case, I know that as I've as I've had children, I relate to my parents more. I, I see the way my kids behave and 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 I the echoes of the stories I heard about my own behavior, you know, <laughs> good or bad, uh, they come to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, these little kids are an extension, not just of me and my wife, but they're of, of my family, of my family lineage. So in a sense, the more I, the close, I, I want to reconnect with my parents to learn more about them, but also more about me. And in our, in my case, there was a health scare in my family, which also my mother was ill for a period, and that made me think about my own mortality for the first time. Well, if my yeah, mother can get cancer, then maybe I'm going to get cancer, and then what? If, what are my kids going to do without me? Like I went on a spiral of like, oh no, what's happening? And I'd never thought about that before. So this is a long-winded way of asking you. What does this investigation of your mother's life, what did it tell you about you? Did you learn things? I know you did. I know because I read the book. But can you <laughs> articulate what you, what you learned about yourself from learning about your, your mother and your father? Because it's a very fascinating story. I don't want to give too much away, but and I, ho- I hope people read it. But what, what can you tell us? What did you learn about yourself in exploring your family's history? Yeah, thanks. I mean, it so many things. I but I think what was really critical is like it's interesting what you say about like how you naturally reject your parents um at a certain point while you're trying to individualize, right? Like that is yes, a yes. it's a developmental yeah. stage. It's a nece- yes. necessary aspect of um maturity and I yeah. think that for me, like the bond between my mother and I was so intense. It was quite claustrophobic by the time I was a teenager and mothers and daughters and all kinds of, you know, there's so many mother daughter relationships. Um, Dynamics. They're often very intense. Right. Um, And then like because I'm an only child and because my mother was um, unattached and it was just the two of us, our bond was very, very tight. And we were also, she was 22 when she had me, but she seemed much younger in Mm. many ways. And she looked much younger. So by the time I was a teenager, we were, I mean, we really did have this heightened sense of mirroring into our relationship. So going back, so my rejection of her was quite intense as well. And, you know, we were, I was, I, you know, we were very close always, but I was also always working pretty hard to maintain my independence and uh, keep a certain amount. You know, I moved a lot, you know, like I moved from 
Michigan to England to Chicago to New York to Toronto, you know. And, you know, I think I there was a certain uh, aspect of that that had to do with uh, trying to find a place for me to figure out who I was because I was still always sort of trying to define myself as someone in opposition to my mother, you know, both consciously and unconsciously. So, you know, thinking back and having the opportunity to like really go through all these stories and, and really let go. I mean, one thing when my mother got sick is at some point it was like a switch just flipped and all of these resentments that I held um, toward her kind of just dissolved. There was this feeling of the things about her that embarrassed me. There were things about her that, um, irritated me. She seemed quite helpless a lot of the time where she would perform a kind of helplessness, um, depending on, you know, the context of what was going on that I found really triggering when I was, um, you know, up until, um, I mean, you know, throughout my adulthood up until like the moment when, it became like just very clear that she was sick and that she had dementia and that there was no point in me being frustrated that she didn't know how to get a dehumidifier for her basement without me helping her. Because at that point it wasn't because she was just frustrating. Um, it was because she was ill and I don't know that just sort of, there was something very liberating for me about being able to just let go of all of these, um, you know, sort of petty frustrations. I was going to say, I, I was had go- with her. I, I was going to say, for those who haven't experienced it yet, at some point, you know, when if if when your family members get ill or there's other kinds of doom looming, that pettiness seems particularly stupid and. Uh, it is easily jettisoned. It makes no sense. It, it, it It's strange that we hang on to it or that, that there's always this pettiness between us as family. And then this, the moment there's some sort of trauma or issue, it, you realize it doesn't matter. So I'm just mentioning this because if we have younger listeners, I, I want them to contemplate that. <laughs> that, that stuff yeah, you're holding sure. on to between your family members, like let it go. Like life is short and you, we need each other. So sorry. Didn't mean to do like a more, no, more I, you I know PSA I think in the middle. that's really valuable to say. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I would say that to all of our relationships. You know what I mean? Exactly. Like yeah. anybody who's been in a long-term romantic partnership. Like there are periods where like you realize how much of your time interacting can be about just, you know, focusing on these tiny little qualities that, that remind you probably of your childhood, which is probably why you're there in the first place. But these sort of like, we get distracted, right? With these little, these little, um, wrinkles in the atmosphere that are actually not where our attention should be. Of course. I don't, I I don't want to, I don't want us to lose sight of the, the, the particular story between you and your mother. But I, I will say that personally, like, I don't know, within the last 10 years, I made a conscious decision to end all grudge matches. <laughs> Any grudge oh, matches boy, I had yeah, going, that's... I reached out to people and I was like, you know what? I don't know what this was or why this is still a thing. I'm done. Like, I realized it was eating away at me and bothering me. And I'm like, I, this is stupid. Like, why do we have these things? Like, you want to stand up for yourself and maybe you want to prove yourself to be right over someone and prove someone else wrong sometimes. But like, to hang on to it, like, it just eats away at you and you're thinking about it. And I just was like, this isn't healthy for me. This isn't healthy for anyone. It's a stupid thing. So similarly with my parents, 
you know, not that we had grudge matches, but I'm like, yeah, trying to let, trying not to be petty. And I feel like that's part of maybe your own discovery in, in, in working this stuff out and writing this book probably. Yeah. Well, and there's also something about, um, I mean, for me, what was very important was to be able to really look as honestly as possible at the ways in which I felt like my mother and I failed each other, not in any way because we were bad people or because we didn't love each other or, I mean, we just, we were both people who did want good things for each other. You know, she wanted to be a wonderful mother and she was an amazing mother in a lot of ways, but she was also dealing with so much, I mean, just so much trauma that had not really properly been addressed um, in her lifetime. And I think that the ways in which that affected, you know, the kind of mother she was able to be, you know, that's just not something that I want. I want to hold on to any kind of resentment around that. Like, I don't feel, I, I just feel like very compassionate towards her. And writing this gave me, I feel like a key also into understanding some of the ways in which I fail as a mother, you know, at, at, in moments. I mean, this idea of failure, like I'm using, it's a provocative word to use in no, this context. I, yeah. Like it's loaded, but I'm, I, I want to use it because I also want to, to take some of the shame away from the fact that we always fail in our relationships to completely live up to what we, we want from each other, you know, at all, you know, we cannot be, um, I mean, we're, we're necessarily flawed and all of us have been traumatized, you know, varying degrees. Yeah. And you discover through your family history and through things your mother said that that trauma that she experienced is horrific and deep and might explain so much of the way she, prior to her illness, just the way she behaved, the way she functioned, um, and it's it's just devastating. Like to, I you know, some of us who are maybe writerly or research oriented, I think I'm sure most of us have at some point thought, you know what, it might be interesting to actually research my own family. You know, figure out where I came from, where they, where my parents came from, and I read your book and I think, man, what would I uncover? You know. You know, why did my, in mm. our case, like my parents moved from India to Canada. Can you imagine, like, what yeah. was your circumstance that would think make you think, you know what, I've got to not only move out of my house, I've got to fly across the world to a place I've never been to make a new life. Like, there's something going on with, I think, you know, I I've, I've, I don't really dwell on it, like the notion of immigration or, or, or particularly in the 70s and you know, uh, diaspora is all these things, but there's got to be something to it. There's got to be something that drives you. I mean, here, you know, I kind of know why we moved from Ontario to Alberta uh, on some level, but I haven't Mm -hmm. really unpacked it totally. But imagine like, you know, being an an immigrant who leaves, you know, the continent for another continent. Like there's probably trauma there that I might be surprised and scared. I'm a bit, I'm a bit apprehensive to uncover it, frankly. And what you've done here, um, is remarkable. Uh, I will say, like it's a it's a beautiful oh, book, and like I say, it got to me. And I also appreciate your candor, your humor, your prose. I mean, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is like I know you as a poet. Uh, as far as I know, is this is this 
your first uh, novel. Like this is a novel. I almost called it a novel. I did almost. I, it's not a novel. Is this your first uh, sort of elaborate work of prose? Yeah, I mean, I've I worked on and off as a you know arts journalist fifteen years ago, and I you know have written and published short pieces of prose, but this is the first book length work of prose and you know it has poems in it it does (laughs) yes i couldn't i couldn't totally avoid that i do i mean i think of um to invoke david berman's name into this conversation i remember in some interviews somewhere he taught like you know people were always asking him to write novels and i remember him saying like you know i work in fragments Mm -hmm. and i do feel like uh, like i'm excited to you know i'm working on a novel now like i am excited to work in longer prose pieces and I, I feel like I understand now how I would do that and that part of that was also embracing the fact that like there's a reason um, as I kind of touched on earlier this idea of like why was poetry the genre that I was initially attracted to and the place where I feel like my brain is the most comfortable and a lot of that has to do with a different kind of relationship to time then then is required by prose like there is this sort of like there were times where I just felt like I was like oh I'm just like writing and then this happened and then this happened and this happened and you know trying to figure out how to deepen into the scenes and how to allow certain moments to uh open up in the way that they that a poem does in this very self-contained way you know and how do you stretch things and you know I created this pretty elaborate uh, you know formal constraint of using the alphabet in order to structure the memoir because I still think like a poet and I wanted it to have a very particular container, you know, in order to shape it, I needed to have some kind of shape to, to pour it into. Like I had to kind of like break it into smaller pieces. Um, and not just in order to get it done, but in order for me to feel like it was alive, like that's, I didn't want to just write a memoir that was like, you know, here are some emotionally devastating things that have happened to me in great detail. Like I don't, there's a whole, like, I mean, I don't want to be disparaging about, you know, the popularity of a particular kind of memoir that, that could describe, but it's, that's not something that, I'm, I don't know, that wouldn't have satisfied me. Like I could have written it straight and I, and I just don't think it would have been true to the story, you know? And so for me, like these getting into fragments was the way, and my mother's consciousness, not only has it been fragmented by disease, but it's, she was always fragmented because of her trauma and what, and I'm really interested in that way that the brain, and I think that my own childhood traumas and my own, um, experience of being my mother's daughter has meant that my brain works in a very particular way. And, um, and, you know, she loved poetry and art and, you know, she loved to draw and she loved sort of fantasy landscapes and, you know, the idea of fairies and, and, you know, so she was always kind of entering into this dreamscape anyway. So for me, like, what I've always been trying to do is try to figure out how to be as real and clear. And like, I wanted to know what was behind the curtain. I wanted to know who my father was. I wanted to know what happened to her. I wanted to know the things she didn't want me to know. And that's what it was like my entire life. And so like, there's this part of me that's always sort of, you know, pushing into the dark corners and 
um, is almost a little bit, it's like, in some ways I have a certain chip missing around a certain, like a, I have like a very heightened sensitivity in one Mm -hmm. area of my mind where I'm, I'm very alert to the temperature of a room, you know, and I, I'm, you know, like the emotional temperature of a room. I'm very aware of how people are responding to me. I'm very conscious of like, I'll remember lots of like very specific detail uh, about an event, but then at the same time, uh, you know, you know, and I'm very sensitive, you know, my feelings are very sensitive. Uh, I spent a lot of time crying as a kid, but then, you know, on the other hand, like I can be, um, almost like, uh, like sometimes I surprise myself how insensitive I can be. And I don't necessarily mean like mean, although sure. I mean, I certainly have been, but I actually mean more like how I've like, there's a certain, um, like, I don't know what it means that I wrote this book and published it. It's very surreal. Like I just, had to put everything in there. I kind of feel like I just like carved art this part of my soul and like put it down. And all like what was I was driven to do was to try to figure out something about what it means to survive, I think, trauma. And I was also really driven to try to do justice to my mother's generation of women who so many of them suffered so much exploitation, you know, and so many, um, you know, I I think there's a point where I was working on this book where I was like, Oh, this is actually about the exploitation of the feminine more than it is about Hmm. my relationship with my mother or, um, language or memory. And, you know, like that's a bit reductive, but it's certainly like an aspect of the story that's very important to me to, and and that was something when I say insensitive, I mean, I was unwilling to make that easier on the reader and I was unwilling to make it easier on me, I guess. Like I didn't, it just didn't even present itself as an option. Like the only option was to try to be as bare as I could possibly be. And so then there's like, I like every once in a while, I, I, I allow myself to try to f- consider what does it mean that I wrote all these things down and put them in a book and then published it. And what does that mean when someone reads this? It's like that they have like a tremendous amount of information about me and my personal life. Like that's, that's like where the insensitivity, like I almost, that seems very abstract to me. And I I know like many of my members of like, you know, my in-laws, like I think are, you know, pretty well-adjusted people who find that a very strange thing to do, (laughs) you know, to like kind of uncover and excavate these things and then um, release them, you know, to, to the world. But to me, it's like, I just, it's, I, it's, I'm bent this way, right? Like I had, I had, to do it. And I am encouraged by the fact that even though I'm not able to, you know, go to do a reading at a festival and meet some people afterwards who I don't already know who have read the book and it resonated in some way. I mean, I had done a couple of, I was working on this book for so long and I kept it so close to me because I was so confused by how it was going to come together until it came together. Yeah. And, but I read a couple times. There's like a couple times where I read a little piece from it in public before the lockdown and before I was finished and before it came out. And in those moments, what was so striking was how much, um, how consistent 
my experience was that after I'd read, not a ton of people, but a few people felt very compelled to talk to me about their own personal experiences. Right. So, and I found that really interesting because that's not, you know, I had not had that experience when I um, published books of poems, you know, people who wanted to talk to me afterwards, you know, had other things that they wanted to ask me about. But what I found really interesting is that when I had read from some of this book and people wanted to talk to me about it, what they wanted to really tell me was, uh, you know, like the, the, one of the first things that they would say is that, you know, and often they would touch me, like they would hold my hand, Mm. you know, um, and say my mother or my sister, my brother, my uncle, and, you know, and it was a different, sometimes it was, you know, related to sexual trauma, you know, that had happened in someone's family that had not been discussed you know, that have been kind of buried in a similar way as I describe in my book. And they want to talk about that. Or, you know, in some cases it was the dementia, you know, and that they knew someone who had lost someone to dementia and they wanted to talk about that. But it was so striking and so satisfying for me as an artist to see that this particular project that because I thought like, oh, what's it going to be like if I if I put this out and how's it going to feel for me to have people I don't know, know all these really personal details about my life. Is it going to feel uncomfortable? Is it going to, and what I I realized like it was very calming and reassuring in those moments where I did bring some work out in public that, um, what my job was, was so simple. Like all I needed to do was to thank them and to listen to them, you know, and to let them tell me the story that my story unlocked for them. And I felt that was such a privilege for me to, to be someone who could receive, you know, and the idea that I was like, Oh, I'm used to transmitting, (laughs) you know, but I'm not used to receiving in this way. And it was, it was really beautiful. And I was really looking forward to seeing how that might unfold when the full book was out. And so it's been sad. That's been sad that, um, you know, I've had wonderful notes and, um, phone calls and emails from friends who have read the book. Um, and I've had a few really great conversations with people, um, like you about the book, but I haven't met readers in that same way. And I I think that for, for a lot of us who have put work out in this year, I think that's, I think the most, I think that's like the, the one thing that feels particularly, um, difficult is to just, it does feel like I was talking to Leanne Batesimusak Simpson, whose novel, um, Nopamine came out around the same time my book came out and it's a great novel. I mean, yeah, my, my wife read that book. Yeah. I oh yeah. It's great. I, I, I had it's the, in the house. I, I, <laughs> I got to edit that book. So I feel like uh, incredibly privileged. I got to read that very early yeah. and work on it with Leanne. And we were both excited to have books out at the same time. And maybe, you know, we're friends. We've known each other for a long time. Like maybe we'd be, you know, in some hospitality suite somewhere in some <laughs> weird city. And, you know, none of that happened. And then, and you know, she was saying, it feels like, like we didn't even put out books, you know, in a way like there's like little things that come in, but like the, the real exchange of energy that happens, especially for writers. Cause you know, as you usually speak to musicians and the exchange between a musician, you know, performing their work to a live audience, which we 
also have lost uh, is very direct. And with readers, you know, the, the, the work, you know, people go somewhere else, you know, they interact with whatever it is that you've made in their own space, in their own time, right? and then have a very private experience. And they also like, I mean, as is the case with any form of art, there's always like a different part of the whole that resonates with each individual reader. And so it's, it's, uh, you know, these moments of exchange where, you know, writers meet readers and readers meet writers always also interestingly happens like very, I mean, yeah, people give readings, but like that's a different way of interacting with the text than reading it on your own, which is like, you know, what, where it really becomes real for me as a reader, you know? And so, yeah, I just have found that kind of, that that's been like the most abstract I think is this idea that like, Oh, like I don't really know. I mean, you never really know what anything is doing once it leaves you, but well, but you, in this moment, it's really hard. Yeah. I I think there's something about your, I don't know, aura or countenance. You know, I think people do want to speak with you. There's a, I mean, you mentioned editing Leanne's book. I was, and you invoked David Berman, uh, uh, as you were speaking about, um, I think you may have possibly, I know he did uh, some interviews. I feel like you were maybe paraphrasing something that he and I discussed actually about, I asked him that. Like, you might've been, I, I loved your interviews oh, with him. Thanks. So. Yeah, no, I did, yeah. but I did specifically like your, I think I said like your songwriting is so vivid and particularly his storytelling songwriting is so vivid. Like I think I said, have you ever thought of writing this, uh, you know, writing a fiction, you know, writing something, or a prose-oriented thing, and he, and I think to your point, he sort of said, "Well, no, I write. That's not just that's just not how I write." Um, anyway, I only mentioned David, uh, and I mentioned Leanne. I know that um, in uh, the uh, book that Bill Callahan wrote, uh, "Letters to mm. Emma Bullcut," he thanks you for shaping the book, and I think your work as an editor. This might seem abstract uh, to you. But as an editor, I think people maybe pick up on that, that you're kind of astute in maybe being able to help them figure something out, whether that's editing their, this is getting a little crazy, and I'm not trying to suggest you're some telepathic person, but I'm sure people approach you and they, <laughs> they see you at a reading and they think, I can, I can approach this person. I can talk to them about their work and relate my life to their life, and it's going to be fine. As they're walking up to you, there are some authors that don't give that off. They finish their reading, and you think, "I that that cat is a little wild. I'm going to keep my distance." But you, you finish, and people approach you. And I think you know, reading Bill, thank you uh, in in his book, and 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 you know, talk, you talking about your relationship with Leanne. I think you being an editor, there's some to that. I, I I don't know if I'm. Is this crazy? Do I sound like a lunatic? <laughs> no, I think like you know, it's really interesting. There's there's a and it's funny because one of the many projects I'm trying to figure out creatively right now, like I'm I'm also writing about the first editing job I ever did was John Fahey's collection of short stories for Drag City, right. which you know I had the only reason I really got that job was because I was friends with Steve Albini's girlfriend at the time, now wife, um, Heather Winna. And Heather had like, you know, we, we were at the in the real height of the honeymoon stage of our very beautiful friendship. And, you know, she was very excited about about 
uh, me and and so like Steve had um, you know this enthusiasm uh, of his girlfriend for this new friend who you know went to university and studied literature like I didn't have any editorial experience whatsoever but Dan was looking for for a woman because they thought John Fahey was going to antagonize a guy, right? But that he would be somehow more manageable uh-huh. on the project if a woman was editing him. And so they were specifically looking for like a woman who might be good with words, basically. <laughs> and I was hanging around and went, you know, I was like, oh, I have a BA in writing and books and stuff, you know, I mean, and they knew me because I was just you know, at the bar or whatever, you know, like I, I mean, it was one of those life event things where, you know, I fell ass backwards into something kind of remarkable, but it's funny. I've been thinking about that a lot recently. It keeps kind of, I mean, that's 20 years ago that book came out and there's things I love about editing and there's things that are, I find very draining about editing because I do what I'm good at as an editor when I'm able to do it is I do get I mean, you're joking when you're saying telepathic, but like it really is an act of entering into someone else's consciousness and really trying to understand what the point of view is of this right. of this work and what the ambitions are and what it wants and what will serve it. And to do that, like I have to submerge myself into this other way of thinking. And it is very similar. It comes from what I'm good at as an editor. There's a plenty of things I'm not great at, but uh, <laughs> the stuff that I'm good at is um, a, a kind of merging of consciousness that I bring in and you know and I I can't replicate it with everybody I can do it with work that I that I'm like I like Leanne I I I would I mean I don't know if I should say this in public because I want to continue to get paid but like I would edit her work for free like because (laughs) I I um uh and you know and I it's because like going into that like the world that her work lives in, I learn so much about the world I want to live in and I become a better artist and I become a better writer and a better thinker and a better human being. So I'm there for that. And like John Fahey's stories, like, I mean, they were strange and, and he was a deeply traumatized person who experienced childhood sexual trauma. So like, it's interesting, like part of what maybe made him someone whose work I could get into. And he had this whole like, fantastical inner world that that kind of bleeded into the real world in his sort of understanding of like who he was and how he presented himself and there were all these layers of of you know like where there's there was a lot of humor and a lot of kind of taking the piss out of whoever was in front of him including the reader right so like I don't know. I got that. Like I was able to get in there. So, and you know, like there've been times in my life, like I've been incredibly fortunate to be around, have a life that where I spent a lot of time around a lot of really interesting, really creative cats, you know, um, Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. unusual stripes. And so, um, and I always, I kind of knew like whenever I was in those spaces, in those moments to absorb as much as I could. And so I think that, that's something that I want to continue to figure out 
as I work on other projects, like how can I continue to integrate everything I've learned from all of the other people who I've talked to and listened to and read and, you know, hung out with or whatever stood close to there's, there's a kind of transmission or a kind of absorption of, um, or expansion. Are we, are we hovering around some aspect of like visceral empathy? Like you seem I think that's what maybe people are picking up on. You get it and you try to relate yeah. to them where they're coming from, which I that's my definition of empathy. And but you yeah. really it sounds like it's a visceral thing. Like you you're talking about standing near people, picking up on what they're about by doing that. And like I say, you're at a public reading and some people are approaching you. There's something about you that that you know, it I again, I said aura, but I think empathy kind of it's floating around you. I think it's it's clear that you're sort of transmitting empathy. That I'm I'm willing to listen to you and relate to you, and I think that comes across in this book as well. Like this is not mm-hmm. an easy project for someone to take on. You really have to try to relate. And your own parents, like as much as you're trying to relate to what your mother is going through now and what she went through in her life, like you're also trying to figure yourself out, and 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 you're. Obviously, there's a deep-seated empathetic connection between yourself and your parent. And so I think what I'm saying is this is now potentially translating uh, for you in other relationships, whether they're with your friends or strangers. That's just something I've noticed about you as we're speaking. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, and I think that like, look, I mean, I can make a joke about it and say like, I also have really poor boundaries, right? <laughs> and that like, and that <laughs> sure. like links up to that, what I was saying about feeling like that kind of lack of sensitivity or understanding of, you know, what to keep private or what to hold back or, you know, I think that it's a superpower, but it's also, of course, like every superpower, it is also my source of greatest vulnerability and weakness and um, is the f- this excess of empathy and also my ability to merge with others. And that is, a, that is because I was raised by a very dissociative, mentally unstable, yeah. um, cognitively impaired, like even in my childhood, like she had probably a closed head injury. Like she had, my mother had like, and my mother merged with me and then she would disappear and merge with me. So I, you know, it's, it's a combination of, um, the, probably the like literal hardwiring of my brain, the genetic predispositions I have to, to this particular way of being in the world. And then, um, also the conditioning of my relationship with my mother and then all of, you know, the other ways in which, you know, it became the way that I, navigated social situations and how I learned to connect to people and how I, and I got, it's like, Oh, I'm getting, you know, a lot of very positive feedback. Um, when I go to, when I, you know, it's like, I, I know I do it. Like I know what it feels like. Like I go inside someone else's, I mean, I don't know how to, you know, like what, how does it really work? But like, I mean, I remember trying to explain it to, you know, uh, like my friend Fred, like 25 years ago in his car, like after being out at a show and talking about like how there are times when I feel like I can climb inside someone else's head and look outside their eyes. Right. Yeah. And, and I, and like, and, and, and it, it feels very real to me and it's, and I, and it's incredible. It's like, 
it's it's the best. Like it feels like being <laughs> yeah. high. Like it's so, yeah. and it's so exciting. And that kind of like, and again, it's like thinking back to the beginning of the lockdown where it's like that sense of heightened reality and like that kind of cocoon and like, it's, uh, you know, the universe of two or whatever in that moment. And it's true. Like, I mean, I can, I can go there with a stranger really fast, you know, um, if the conditions are right and, you know, but also like I shouldn't all the time. It's not necessarily like you can't, I mean, there's something lovely about walking through the world, you know, with this like wide open heart. And then there's also like, I mean, one of the ways I managed the, how overwhelming that was in my youth and by youth, I mean like up until like a f- couple of years ago, you know, like I, I really, um, dealt with how overwhelming that could be in certain social circumstances by drinking too much, you know, like I tried to numb myself out because it was just like, it felt like my circuits were going to overload. So I think that like, and that was something I also wanted to kind of think about and like, what, what does that mean? You know, what, and like, what does it mean when we say like, like when you're talking about your mother's mortality, making you really face your own. Um, I mean, for me, a lot of it too, is I sort of felt like, oh, I'm watching and I really, you know, there's a lot of things that are very different about, very different about how I exist in the world and how my mother existed in the world um, before her illness. Like, I mean, you could, you know, I, many, 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 many things, but there are certain qualities that I'm describing about, I mean, her empathy was so intense that she could not watch anything sad. Whereas like I push myself like I'm. And so I have this like strange combination of feeling like, like it, like an excessive amount, uh, like an, like a very heightened ability to see, like to see someone and really connect to them in their particular sense of reality and to feel, and I'm curious, like I'm curious about people I'm interested, but you know, at the same time, I feel like I'm for the most part also quite willing and able to go dark and be exposed to dark things and painful things and not retreat, you know, whereas, uh, you know, and that's because I had the luxury of, you know, not being repeatedly sexually assaulted in my childhood, you know, unlike my mother. So, you know, there's a reason why my, why I have that increased capacity and I actually have a hunger for it. And the reason I have a hunger for it was I think my mother spent so much time trying to shield herself and also me from the true nature of things that were un, you know, unattractive or unseemly or disturbing in any way that I was driven to try to get closer to those things because I knew that there, you know, like the, um, and, and that I also, I remember being very young and taking a certain kind of unseemly amount of pride. I mean, I was a child, but like in being able to handle things my mother couldn't handle. Yeah. You know, like being eight years old or nine years old and being and being aware that my capacity for 
handling and managing certain things was superior to my mother's abilities um, in that in those same areas, and and that that made me feel. You know, like I felt special, like yeah. I could handle things that my mother couldn't handle and I could figure things out she couldn't handle. And I was, you know, smarter than her or whatever, you know, like I was, um, I had, and those sorts of skills that I had that she lacked made me feel more secure in the world because I, you know, mm. like I, growing up as a young girl with a very attractive, very sexually active, um, very magnetic mother, like, you, you know, it's. I was very aware of men being creatures I had to manage, you know, like yeah, I had to yeah. be, uh, uh, you know, and I mean predators. Yes. But also even just the desire of men, um, you know, and like what it is to be like that, that actual experience of, of being objectified in a particular way just, and, and I, I've, I think I watched how that affected my mother. Um, and it really formed my own complications with entering and exiting that kind of space as a young woman. Like I was Mm. both, you know, I found it, I, you know, I, I found, and, and it was also like her territory. Like when I became a teenager and started to look like a young woman, and started to get attention from men, you know, that was when my relationship with my mother was at its worst because it was very difficult for her to, I mean, and she really did. I mean, she flirted with my boyfriends and I mean, which didn't even bother me. Like it bothered my boyfriends, but I was just like, that's just how my mother talks to all men. Like it meant nothing to me, you know, it didn't bother me at all. But like, I think that like, I spent a lot of time watching, watching the ways in which the, the way she looked like the idea of her being sexually attractive up until like, you know, her late forties was the way the world saw her. And it was where her value was placed in this very particular way. And I was always kind of, you know, very itchy in my own life around that, that, being in that role, you know, because I, you know, I always, it was always really important to me and still like uh, the easiest way to get me snarling is for a guy to in some way dismiss me intellectually, you know, like, like I have such an overly developed aggressive need to be recognized as a peer by Mm -hmm. men, you know? And like, I think this is less and less of an issue for women who are younger than me, but like from my generation, like, I mean, it's like, I can't, you know, I mean, just the ways in which, uh, I mean, I had a mentor like 15 years ago, maybe like who was about 10 years older than me, you know, really nice guy. But I remember him saying to me, without any sense of like how problematic this was as a, a statement, he said, you know, the thing about you is you want to be admired, but you also want to be treated as a peer. Huh. And I was like, why would those things be mutually exclusive? Like what you're telling me is that a woman you find attractive 
is not someone that you can take seriously intellectually. Yeah. Well, I, I will and, say, you know, you made a point there of saying, you know, maybe younger women don't experience this. I, I can tell you from my conversations with younger women, they do. So, well, of course they do. I mean, we haven't yeah. fixed anything, but I do think that there's a little bit more, I don't know. I like to think it's funny. I remember working with a writer, uh, the great, um, you know, she's an American poet, April Bernard and novelist. She's really lovely. Um, when I was in grad school, I remember kind of like having these, you know, really complicated anxieties around ambition and what, exactly it would it meant to be a, an ambitious woman and what I wanted and what I could picture for myself and I remember her feeling like her expressing her like f- disappointment that because she's essentially like a generation older than me or half a generation older than me and I remember her feeling like oh you know I keep thinking this is going to go away for young women you know yeah, this particular yeah. kind of crisis over how do you uh, you know, particularly like heterosexual or bisexual, you know, cis gendered women who end up in partnerships with heterosexual men, you know, like, and this, um, you know, like, how do you manage, you know, like, how do you, how you, how do you define what kind of artist you're going to be and how are you going to do it? And be a mother and like, and so like, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm getting really off track here. My son's walking yeah, and, in the door. And your but son is walking that, in the door. <laughs> yeah. But which is, you know, illustrative of, of sort of where I was going. But I think like this idea of like, that was something I was really thinking about um, as well as I was looking at my mother's life is, I mean, she had all these ambitions that she was unable to fulfill for all kinds of reasons. Like she didn't really, yeah. she wasn't she didn't have the skills as an artist to be a professional illustrator, although that was something she would have loved to have done. You know, she didn't have um, the skills as a writer to be a professional writer, although that's something she would have loved to have done. Um, But, you know, I think that she also just didn't like the way forward was just completely unclear to her. You know, how could she do, you know, pursue these particular activities? Um, at the highest level, like there were no models available to her and the few that there were, you know, were, were quite yeah. felt, I think quite distant. But so I think like really for me going through and looking at her story and thinking about it and thinking about my grandmother too, was, was also like an opportunity to really kind of think through, you know, how, how creative women have struggled to walk this line of creating a life that has meaning and that is engage where they are fully engaged in the activities that give life meaning, and you know that they're also able. I mean, I'm just finally reading Frankenstein by Mary Shelley for the first time, and mm-hmm. it's blowing my mind for so many reasons. And she's, I mean, I'm starting. And it's like, oh, this is an attack on male ambition. Like yeah. the entire, yeah. you know, the entire structure of the novel is, uh, you know, you can I'm like, of course, she's writing that, you know, she's literally standing next to Byron and Shelley um, and their mm-hmm. egos and narcissism and their idea of what a great man is and what they're going to do in the world. Um, and they did considerable things, you know, yeah. but I, how many times a day do I see some diluted iteration of Frankenstein, you know, like yeah. 
Yeah. I was just putting away stickers like that Mike's parents sent Levi for Halloween. You know, there's like Frankenstein heads. Like there's, I was thinking of like Frankenberry cereal. Like it's just so pervasive. <laughs> and so, and like, I think that's like very interesting. Like, and like, I'm loving looking at Frankenstein from the perspective of it being about this woman who, you know, was so constrained in so many ways, but was also, you know, and she was particularly privileged, right? Um, in a lot yeah. of ways also. But like yeah. her point of view in that moment uh, in time and what she captures there about looking at the tensions around um, the ways in which ambitions for women have been generally very like uh, controlled um, and and limited and and yeah constrained and yeah. and I think that like that was something I was thinking about a lot as an as a condition that we you know we are still wrestling with obviously um and in particularly for my mother like how many ways yeah. in which her own um her own story was really as a very independent woman ultimately like she raised me alone yeah she never remarried you know but at the same time, uh, you know, her life was was so defined in other ways by these relationships with men. Um, yeah, I, I do want to say, like, I, I so much of what you've just been discussing is is a part of this book, but I want people to read this book. So I want us to stop here and and get people <laughs> to connect with the book. Uh, and I don't mean to stop you from talking. Please don't. Don't, nope, don't no, misconstrue no, no, this. we've been talking a long time. No, no, we have been, but I also <laughs> feel like, uh, you know, we, uh, there are things I wanted to leave to the reader. And I, I, I think it's important that people read this book. And, and so I appreciate you spilling so many beans, but I also want people to... Oh, thanks. Yeah, no, it, it, uh, I've enjoyed this very much. Now, the book is called An Alphabet for Joanna, A Portrait of My Mother in 26 Fragments, uh, as blurbed on Twitter by Margaret Atwood, Evocative, beautifully written, heartbreaking. I, I don't recall seeing Twitter tweets as blurbs, but maybe that's a new thing on books. I, I, that's uh, I think it's particular to to Margaret. <laughs> to Margaret, Atwood, yeah, okay. actually, <laughs> it's funny. No, a, it amused that's me. That's a concession made for Margaret Atwood okay. that that becomes a blurb. Yeah, there's a uh, nice blurb here from uh, Leanne Batasmusak Simpson, and then also Margaret Atwood on Twitter. Anyway, the book is wonderful. Uh, Damien, where would you like to send people to learn more about this book and, and potentially to learn more about you? Well, um, I would, I have a, uh, website and an Instagram account and a Twitter account. And I am not good at updating all of them consistently, (laughs) but, uh, they're there and they can be looked at. But I think that, uh, the book for those who are so inclined, I think, um, it has the most to, uh, provide in terms of information about me. And yeah, I think that there's a lot of, of people say this all the time, but I'll say it too. If you can support a local independent bookstore, that is the best way always to buy books and people can find my websites, damianrogers.space. And there's a way to get in touch with me through that. But if people are buying this for someone, I wanted, I've been telling people that, um, I'd be very happy to, because we can't inscribe books in the normal ways. Mm -hmm. I'd be very happy to mail people. I've been writing out like, um, notes for people who are buying, you know, like for, you know, like I'll inscribe it basically on a pink index card and then mail that to you and you can put it in a book. You know, it just seems like there's gotta be some way that we can personalize things for, you know, 
you got to find workarounds. Yeah, and, you can, we can't um, all have yeah, we can't all have robotic autograph arms like Margaret Atwood. We got to do other other things. But that's it. I don't yeah, have yeah. one of those. Get, I don't have a long. Got to get one. DamianRogers.space or PenguinRandomHouse.ca uh, for information about an alphabet for Joanna. Uh, I guess is the best best case scenario. Damien, I really want to thank you for making time to be on on this show and for the Happy Holidays suggestion for gifts for people, your book. I think that's a, that was savvy. That was savvy plugging by you at the end. <laughs> I thought that was great. And that would be a great gift, uh, particularly for those of us who are missing our families and maybe want to make sure we stay connected to our families. Uh, there's a lot going on in this book uh, to that end. So Damien, I just, uh, that was a long way of saying thank you so much for this chat. I, I hope you enjoyed it and I wish you the best of luck in the future. Thank you, Vish. I had a great time and uh, I appreciate you letting me uh, ramble off into various pastures there. Uh, It's always really great to talk to you and uh, I really appreciate you inviting me on. Yeah, it's very nice to connect with uh, my old uh, colleague there, Damien Rogers. Damien, thank you for being on the 588th episode of Creative Control. It means a lot. For those of you unfamiliar with this show, Creative Control is part of the Entertainment One Podcast Network and is available uh, wherever you get your podcasts on all the major and not-so-major things. Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever it is you use, Creative Control is there for you. If you can't find an episode that you've heard about and you're looking for it, and you just can't find it, or if you want to learn more about me, sign up for my monthly uh, newsletter, please visit my website, vishkana.com. You can like Creative Control on social media platforms like Facebook. You can follow the show directly at Vish Creative, or you can follow me directly uh, at vishkana on Twitter and at vishkana on Instagram, actually. Also, please visit patreon.com slash creativecontrol to make a flexible monthly donation to sustain this podcast, to keep it in existence. We've had a lot of lovely annual donations, I've noticed lately. People are taking advantage of this new feature, and so, uh, yeah, it's very sweet. I'm very, very uh, honored, and I feel fortunate that I have some support on Patreon. It really does help. And uh, just so you know, you can, can, like I say, it's a monthly flexible donation, any amount you want, uh, but $6 or more gets you access to some uh, older audio content from my podcast past interviews i've done with people uh over the years uh, recently as i'm speaking to you, i recently posted a 2012 conversation i had with uh, uh guy picciotto of uh, fugazi and we were discussing uh, his band rights of spring uh, who at that time had just uh, released a demo a demo recording on discord records so that's the kind of stuff and there's like a whole bunch of other stuff too anyway you can learn more about this at patreon.com slash creative control uh, thanks again uh, to all of the people who provide in-kind support for this show. People like Pizza Trocadero, The Bookshelf, and Planet Bean Coffee in Guelph, and Granddad's Donuts in Hamilton. And also my friend Jim Guthrie, who loans me some uh, he loans me some music for the show. And you can learn more about his amazing catalog of work at jimguthrie.org. Uh, finally, thanks to you. Thanks to Damien, I should say. Thank you, Damien, again for being on the show. And thank you. Thank you for listening to Damien and I in conversation and for potentially subscribing to the podcast or following it and maybe telling your friends 
uh, to consider doing the same. It means a lot. And that is all I have to say for now. I will talk to you very soon. I hope you're well. We'll talk soon. Bye for now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.